Chapter Four of the Confessions of a Poacher, edited by John Watson, Fellow of the Linnean Society. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Partridge poaching. The bloom on the brambles, the ripening of the nuts, and the ruddiness of the corn all acted as reminders that the fence time was rapidly drawing to a close so much did the first frost quicken us that it was difficult to resist throwing up our farm work before the game season was fairly upon us there was only one way in which we could curb the wild impulse within we stood up to the golden corn and smote it from the rising to the going down of the sun the hunter's moon tried hard to win us to the old hard life of sport but still the land must be cleared there was a double pleasure in the ruddy sheaves for they told of golden guineas and until the last load was carried neither nets gins nor the old duck gun were of any use the harvest housed the game could begin and then the sweet clover which the hares loved first pushed their shoots between the stubble stalks but neither the hares on the fallows the grouse on the moor nor the pheasants on the bare branches brought us so much pleasure as the partridge a whole army of shooters loved the little brown birds and we are quite of their way of thinking a long life of poaching has not called our ardour for this phase of woodcraft at the outset we may state that we have almost invariably observed close times and have rarely killed a hare or game bird out of season the man who excels in poaching must be country bred he must not only know the land but the ways of the game by heart every sign of wind and weather must be observed as all help in the silent trade then there is the rise and wane of the moon the rain bringing tides and the shifting of the birds with the seasons these and a hundred other things must be kept in an unwritten calendar and only the poacher can keep it speaking from hard experience his outdoor life will make him quick will endow him with much ready animal ingenuity he will take in an immense amount of knowledge of the life of the fields and woods and it is this teaching which will ultimately give him accuracy of eye and judgment sufficient to interpret what he sees aright to succeed the poacher must be a specialist it is better if he directs his attention to fur or to feather alone but it is terribly hard to resist going in for both there is less scope for field ingenuity in taking game birds but at the same time there is always the probability of more wholesale destruction this arises from the fact of the birds being gregarious both grouse and partridge go in coveys 
and pheasants are found in the company of their own kind. Partridges roost on the ground, and sleep with tails tucked together and heads outwards. Examine the fallow after they have left it in the morning, and this will be at once apparent. A covey in this position represents little more than a mass of feathers. It is for protective reasons that partridges always spend their nights in the open. Birds which do not perch would soon become extinct were they to seek the protection of woods and hedge-bottoms by night. Such ground generally affords cover for vermin, weasels, polecats and stoats. Although partridges roam far by day, they invariably come together at night, being partial to the same fields and fallows. They run much and rarely fly, except when passing from one feeding ground to another. In coming together in the evening, their calls may be heard to some distance. These were the sounds we listened for and marked. We remembered the gorse bushes and knew that the coveys would not be far from them. We always considered partridge good game and sometimes were watching a dozen coveys at the same time. September once in, there was never a sundown that did not see one of us on our rounds making mental notes. It was not often, however, that more than three coveys were marked for a night's work. One of these, perhaps, would be in turnips, another among stubble, and the third on grass. According to the nature of the crop, the lay of the land, wind, etc., so we varied our tactics. Netting partridges always requires two persons, though a third to walk after the net is helpful. If the birds have been carefully marked down, a narrow net is used. If their roosting place is uncertain, a wider net is better. When all is ready, this is slowly dragged along the ground, and is thrown down immediately the whirr of wings is heard. If neatly and silently done, the whole covey is bagged. There is a terrible flutter, a cloud of brown feathers, and all is over. It is not always, however, that the draw is so successful. In view of preventing this method of poaching, especially on land where many partridges roost, keepers plant low scrubby thorns at intervals. These so far interfere with the working of the net as to allow the birds time to escape. We were never much troubled, however, in this way. As opportunity offered, the quickthorns were torn up, and a dead blackthorn bough took their place. As the thorns were low, the difference was never noticed, even by the keepers, and of course they were carefully removed before and replaced after netting. Even when the dodge was detected, the fields and fallows had been pretty much stripped of the birds. 
This method is impracticable now, as the modern method of reaping leaves the brittle stubble as bare as the squire's lawn. We had always a great objection to use a wide net where a narrow one would suit the purpose. Among turnips, and where large numbers of birds were supposed to lie, a number of rows, or rigs, were taken at a time, until the whole of the ground had been traversed. This last method is one that requires time and a knowledge of the keeper's beat. On rough ground, the catching of the net may be obviated by having about 18 inches of smooth glazed material bordering the lowest and trailing part of it. Some of the small farmers were as fond of poaching as ourselves, and here is a trick which one of them successfully employed whenever he heard the birds in his land. He scattered a train of grain from the field in which the partridge roosted, each morning bringing it nearer and nearer to the stackyard. After a time, the birds became accustomed to this mode of feeding, and as they grew bolder, the grain train was continued inside the barn. When they saw the golden feast invitingly spread, they were not slow to enter, and the doors were quickly closed upon them. Then the farmer entered with a bright light, and felled the birds with a stick. In the dusk of a late autumn afternoon, a splendid pot shot was sometimes had at a bunch of partridges just gathered for the night. I remember a score such. The call of the partridge is less deceptive than any other game bird, and the movements of a covey are easily watched. This tracking is greatly aided if the field in which the birds are is bounded by stone walls. As dusk deepens and draws to dark, they run and call less, and soon all is still. The closely packed covey is easy to detect against the yellow stubble, and resting the gun on the wall, a charge of heavy shot fired into their midst usually picks off the lot. If, in five minutes, the shot brings up the keeper, it matters little, as then you are far over the land. Partridges feed in the early morning, as soon as day breaks, in fact. They resort to one spot, and are constant in their coming, especially if encouraged. This fact I well knew and laid my plans accordingly. By the aid of the moon, a train of grain was laid straight as a hazel wand. Upon these occasions, I never went abroad without an old duck gun, the barrels of which had been filed down. This enabled me to carry the gun stock in one pocket, the barrels in the other. The shortness of the latter in no wise told against the shooting, as the gun was only required to use at short distances. The weapon was old, thick at the muzzle, and into it I crammed a heavy charge of powder and shot. Ensconced in the scrub, I had only now to wait for the dawn. 
almost before it was fully light, the covey would come with a loud whirring of wings and settle to feed immediately. This was the critical moment. Firing along the line, a single shot strewed the ground with dead and dying, and in ten minutes, always keeping clear of the roads, I was a mile from the spot. I had yet another and a more successful method of taking partridges, when, from the watchfulness or cleverness of keepers, they are not intelligent men as a rule, both netting and shooting proved impracticable. I soaked grain until it became swollen, and then steeped it in the strongest spirit. This, as before, was strewn in the morning paths of the partridge, and, soon taking effect, the naturally pugnacious birds were presently staggering and fighting desperately. Then I bided my time, and as opportunity offered, knocked the incapacitated birds on the head. One of the most ingenious and frequently successful methods I employed for bagging partridge was by the aid of an old setter bitch having a lantern tied to her neck. Being somewhat risky, I only employed it when other plans failed, and when I had a good notion of the keeper's whereabouts. The lantern was made from an old salmon canister, stripped of its sides, and contained a bit of candle. When the bitch was put off into seeds or stubble, she would range quietly until she found the birds, then stand as stiffly as though done in marble. This shewed me just where the covey lay, and as the light either dazzled or frightened the birds, it was not difficult to clap the net over them. It sometimes happened that others besides myself were watching this strange luminous light, and it was probably set down as some phenomenon of the night side of nature. Once, however, I lost my long silk net, and as there was everything to be gained by running, and much to be lost by staying, I ran desperately. Only an old slow dog can be used in this species of poaching, and it is marvellous to see with what spirit and seeming understanding it enters into the work. End of chapter 4